my name is Derek. I'm campus pastor for RUF. And uh, we are working this semester through a series on relationships. We started out very broad. God's design for relationships, what's wrong with them, why are we so often frustrated by them or find them frustrating. And uh, since then we're moving along, hitting different topics of relationships that we find ourselves in every day. Um, family. And uh, we're going to move along and talk about dating and marriage. Some of you aren't there, obviously, but uh, it'll probably happen to you whether you want it to or not at some point. Um, but this semester, uh, this semester, this week, we're talking about community. Um, and community is something that uh, most of us are drawn to and puzzled by. And it's quite likely that as you came to campus, maybe at the beginning of your freshman year just a few months ago, or maybe a few years ago, or maybe even as you came to campus again this year, you found yourself asking the question, who are my people? Where will I find the place that I fit? What's my community? And uh, that's a good question. It's a question that almost everyone asks. Everyone's talking about community. It's, very, it's a very common topic lately in the last 10 or 15 years, but it's actually been very perplexing societally for like 60 years. You can go back to the mid-1950s, and there were 94 discrete definitions of the word community, with very little agreement uh, among them. And it's even more complicated now to nail down just what we're talking about with community, given our global community, given what technology has enabled us to do with virtual communities and the ability to, to communicate across all kinds of distances. Um, and despite all those advantages, I think you can argue that we are no less lonely. That we are no less lonely now than before. Some would argue that we're perhaps even more lonely. Why is it so hard to find where we belong? And once we get in a community, why are we so often disappointed? Paul here in Romans 12 is not exactly addressing community the way we would expect, but what he does is give us here a beautiful picture of what a healthy community looks like and invites us into it. So I'm going to be reading Romans chapter 12, all the verses, and uh, feel free to follow along up there as I read. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let's use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Let love be genuine. Abhor what's evil, hold fast to what's good, love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord. 
Rejoice in hope and be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be conceited. Repay no one for evil, but give thought to what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it's written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. All right, I'm going to pray. You can join if you like. Our great Father, we pray that you would be kind to us tonight to sharpen our minds and soften our hearts to show us good things in your law, especially yourself, Lord Jesus. We ask these things in your name. Amen. Has anyone here seen the movie Charlie Bartlett? One person. It would be you. Um, Charlie Bartlett was a little scene uh, but really quite a fun movie in 2007. It, it chronicles the, uh, well, the misadventures of Charlie, who's a high school student who's been kicked out of a number of private schools and finds himself uh, thrust into a public school. There he struggles to find his place. And one particularly funny scene in the movie, he's being driven to school by his chauffeur, and he's talking to his mom. And his mom, who's very patient and a very sweet woman, but broken, um, simply says, there's more to school than being liked, Charlie. And he very innocently, sincerely asks, like what? And she thinks about it for a moment and says, nothing comes to mind. Well, Charlie does find his place, and it's an odd one. Charlie's place in the school is actually a stall in the boys' bathroom. And from there, he dispenses wisdom, advice, and prescription medications to everyone that comes and seeks his ear. He really has a sincere desire to help others. And as he listens to their symptoms and ails, he makes careful notes, he's very smart, and goes back to his own host of psychiatrists and psychologists, and they write him prescriptions, and he takes them and gives them out. And he continued to do this um, until there were long lines of people out the door. And he did this until uh, one person overdosed and tried to kill themselves. So he hangs up the medication business, but continues to meet at the stall to listen to give advice, because he cares. There's a point in the movie where he is uh, before a crowd, and he's giving a, a little bit of a speech. And what he says is this, Do you think I'm any less screwed up than you are? I get up every morning, and I look in the mirror, and I try to figure out just where I fit in. And I just usually draw a complete blank. That's actually... The real question of the movie, where do we fit in? And Charlie finds a place by listening and caring for others. He doesn't want to be alone. He doesn't want anyone to be alone. And the reality is uh, we often feel like we're doomed to that. But uh, it's not God's will that we be alone. We were created for community. We, we belong, if we're in Christ, to a community. 
So we're going to see in our text tonight that God's will is our belonging and our participation. Our participation in a community like no other. Uh, throughout the night, as I talk to the text, I am probably going to interchange the terms church and community. Because when God draws people to himself, he connects them to a community called his church. For some of you, that has uh, probably some negative associations. As we talk through the night, you see what this community is supposed to be like. Maybe it'll be a little different for you. So uh, the question right off the bat is, where do you belong? And uh, Paul here answers that if you're in Christ... If you've trusted in Him, you belong to Christ. You see this in verses 1 and 2. Paul writes, I appeal to you therefore, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. Uh, What Paul is doing is drawing a conclusion. What he's saying is, over the last 11 chapters, I've told you all about Jesus and His mercy. Everything He's done for you. Therefore... Present yourself as a living sacrifice to Him. Uh, What that means, living sacrifice, it means every part of you belongs to Jesus. If you trust in Christ, every part of you belongs to Him. Not just your Sunday morning part, but your academic part, your recreation part, your family part, your relation part, and all your sexual parts. All of them belong to Him. And uh, not in order to earn his favor, but as a response. In view of his mercy, all that he's done for you, all that he's done to love you, all of you belongs to him. You give yourself back to him as a sacrifice. In glad response, in loving loyalty to Jesus. Um, You're not out to earn something. This is not about earning. Eleven chapters of mercy given to you. In response, you give yourself back to him. You belong to him. And uh, what are you supposed to do? Well, the rest of the verses tell you you're you're transformed. As you do so, God begins to change you. You become more and more like Jesus. But also it says here the will of God. You learn the will of God. And as you go through the rest of this chapter, what you figure out is the will of God for you is that you belong to a community. You belong to a community. That's his will for you, that you become ever more like Jesus, and you find your place in the community. So you belong to Jesus, but then you find yourself, verses 4 and 5, belonging to one another. Look at verse 4 and 5. It says this, that you now, by virtue of the fact that you've trusted in Jesus, are part of a body. As in one body, we have many members, arms, forearms, biceps, so on. Um, You have all these members of your body. Uh, In the same way, we are individually members of a body. He says it twice, that we belong together in this community like a body. And um, he stresses it. Not only do you belong to this community, but individually you are members of one another. See that in verse 5? Do you see it in verse 5? Members of one another. So what you have then is a threefold belonging in this text. By the mercies of God, you belong to Jesus. You belong to this body, this community called the church. And you belong to all the members in the church. You belong to one another. It's pretty cool. What is conspicuously missing here is that you don't belong to yourself. Right? It's not really here. And frankly, that's our everyday default. I am my own. I chart my course. I do what I want. And if so, I may relate to these other things, but really I'm trying to bend them to my will. 
Here we see we belong, but we don't belong to ourselves. We belong to Christ, His community, to one another. And uh, that sounds really hard, but it's really good. Um, yeah, based on, I'll explain why it's good uh, in a minute, but what we have here is that you really truly belong to God, to Christ, to one another. And this belonging is based not on the usual things that make you feel like you belong. When you interact with communities or groups here, you are trying to find your fit, right? And your fit is usually based on like any one or combination of a thousand different factors. Socioeconomic background, your looks, your performance, your grades, your sociability, your interests, whatever it is. It's some aspect of you where you either have to have performed or you're performing at the moment in order to find your fit. And the reality here is that everyone that belongs to this community belongs despite their performance. You only belong to this community if you don't belong, if you haven't earned it. Everyone that's a part of this community is there by mercy. Mercy alone. Everyone that's a part of this community got in because of Jesus' love and forgiveness. That's really good news. Because any other kind of community, based on your performance, your personality, um, the things that make you feel like you fit, well, your position is insecure. Someone could come along who's prettier than you. Or you'll just get old. Or you'll just fail the test and be kicked out. Or whatever the case it is, your position is always tenuous. But here you have a community where you are, are a belonging member despite the fact that you didn't earn it by mercy. That means you can be yourself. It means really that you can be yourself. You don't have to prove yourself to anyone. It means you can be secure. You don't have to worry about losing your place. Because you belong by mercy. And when you take this deep in, what it, what it does is it produces a healthier community. So you belong to a community, if you're in Christ, that's a healthy community. And this healthy community is marked by a couple things. It's marked first by humble honesty. Okay? Humble honesty. Um, how would I put this? Well, I don't have to. Paul did it. Verse 3, Paul says... By the grace given to me, I say to every one of you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but with sober judgment. Paul's saying, I'm encouraging all of you to think, just drop dead honest about yourself. And he has to encourage them to do that because it's human nature not to do that. It's human nature to think of ourselves more highly than we are, to think we're smarter, prettier, stronger, more deserving, whatever the case, more special than we really are. And what Paul's saying is, as a result of the fact that you've received mercy, that Christ has been kind to you, and even though you deserve it, and brought you into the family where you belong, even though you don't deserve it, you can now be honest with yourself. And for me, being honest with myself, and I encourage you to try this on. It's a pair of pants, it's got two legs. Try this on. One side of the honesty equation. I'm so great. Sarcasm. I'm so great. And some days I really do think I'm great. I'm so great that the Son of God had to take flesh and die for me. Put that on your resume. It's the biblical reality. It's the ultimate description of who we are as people. You may be very gifted. You may have wonderful intentions. 
But the ultimate indictment from God is that every single one of us needed the Son of God to take flesh and come and die for us. That's how great we are. It's pretty humbling, right? That's one side. The other side of the pants leg is this. I'm so loved that Jesus chose to do so for me. He didn't have to. I'm so loved that the Son of God chose to die for me. If you put on those two truths regularly, you will end up with a humble honesty. You will be able to look at yourself and say, like, oh, I'll just give you my MO. All right, Derek, you're a pretty smart guy. Too prone to trust your intellect. Too critical. Little, eh, maybe not insecure, but you're, you're good at like putting off your insecurity by self-deprecation. And uh, yes, you scare people because you're big. And yes, you scare people because you have a deep voice. And yes, you like that about yourself because it keeps people at a distance. You're a jerk. And so that's the shorthand of my honest M.O. I'm able to be honest about myself. And there's a lot more I could say about myself and my shortcomings. And uh, I mean, I could make excuses for it, but the reality is I'm responsible for all that and more. And I know that God chose to love me anyway. And uh, that's good. It really is good. What it does is it frees you up to, uh, to move into community in a way that's really healthy. This, is, this humble honesty is an antidote to something that always kills community, which is the delusional, selfish ambition we have that if only I were in charge of this community, things would be the way it was supposed to be. It's our natural will to think that things might revolve around us or that we can make things the way they're supposed to be or if I was in charge, it would be different and to bend community and others to our will to serve us. And frankly, when you have a whole group of people doing that, which is pretty not normal in communities, what you have is dissension, political bite back, backbiting, gossip, all the things that destroy community. They really make us disappointed and frustrated. But humble honesty allows me to look out and say... Well, I might have the brains to run this, but I've got all the social skills of a rock. So, um, yeah, I need some help, or someone else has to do this. I can be honest about myself. Um, yeah, I'll just give an example. Honesty for me means realizing over the last four years that I may know people in our ministry need to be encouraged, but I can say the most encouraging thing I can conjure up, and it will still sound like a burden to some people. Seriously. So it means for me to encourage people, I have to get other people to encourage people for me. Like, why don't y'all share some encouraging stories? Okay, that's good. <laughs> like, that's acknowledging my weakness and knowing that you can do things that I can't do. Seriously. And a lot of times we're not able to be that honest with ourselves. And uh, being humble about yourself because God has been merciful to you allows you to do that. It's good. So that's one thing. Humble honesty makes a healthy community. Another thing is uh, shared service. In verses 4 through 8, I'm not going to go into great detail about all these, but the picture you have is of a body. And each part of the body has a different responsibility or, or gift. And what Paul is saying is that each one of you has a gift. And because you have a gift, he tells them, verse 6, end of it, you've got the gift. Use it. Because it's our nature to actually have a gift and not use it. For lots of reasons. Because we're envious of other people's gifts. Or because we're lazy and apathetic. Whatever the case may be. Paul says, you all have a gift. 
You've all got something to give. Figure out what it is. Is it leadership? Is it service? Is it mercy? Compassion? This is just a partial list. There's other lists. Whatever it is, find out what it is and and use it. And uh, this is a wonderful antidote to apathy and to envy. To sitting around and saying, well, I wish I could do that. Look, man, someone's giving you a special gift. We need you to do that. Stop being apathetic and do it. Um, I think it's possible that to illustrate what Paul's getting at here um, with a really stupid illustration, but I think it will work. There's a big difference between playing a sport on a video game and playing a sport in real life. Okay? In a video game, one person sits and does everything and may win. One person sits and does everything and may win. But in real life, a coach has to work hard to equip all the players and enable them to play well together in order for them to win. And that's how a true community and how the church is supposed to operate. Everyone figuring out their role, being encouraged and equipped, working together. And, uh, but I think deep in our psyches, we have this other thing. One person pulling all the strings is all we need. And frankly, I'm gonna, I may hit close. This might feel like a little underhanded to some of you. I'm not trying to be. It's just after eight years of ministry, I'm more convinced of this than ever. Some of you have been done a disservice in this area by your parents and by your church youth groups or some other youth group. Because you've grown up around adults who've done everything for you. And maybe it wasn't your parents. Maybe your parents hired someone to do their parenting for them. But whatever the case may be, and it may be true in youth group too, you had professionals and volunteers do everything for you. And so you think, either I don't have to do anything, or, perhaps even worse, I can't do anything. God's given you a gift. We need you. It's the nature of the body to need you, every member, to do your thing that God gave you. So I want to encourage you. Figure out what that is. Figure out. This is not supposed to be some burdensome task. No, this is the gift that you were given. This is something you're good at. Something that gives you delight to do. Figure out what that is. Let me help you figure out what it is. And let's get you in the game. Because we need you. And when you're doing this, contributing, serving, you'll find, sometimes you're like, I don't feel like I belong. Well, it's because you're not doing anything. Everybody else is. Let's figure out what you can do. Let's get in. Let's serve. Let's play together. So you belong to a healthy community that's honest and serving, and you belong to a loving community. This is the last point. And uh, regarding the word love, I think it's possible this word doesn't quite mean what you think it means. A loving community. So Paul in verse 9 starts describing this loving community. And if you look through it, you would say like, yeah, that looks really great. But when you try it on, you end up saying, man, this is really hard. Uh, so I'll just sort of, I'm not going to explain everything he says. We'd be here forever. I'm just going to sort of group them together and say them and say, what do you think about this? So a loving community. The first thing he says in verse 9 is that, that love should be genuine. I think we'd all agree with that. shouldn't be an act. shouldn't be a program. It should be something that's genuine from the heart. Another word for genuine might be sincere. So let's let love be sincere. You'd probably agree with that, right? You don't want 
a group or a church that just sort of fake loves you or acts like they love you. You want it to be real, right? Okay, then Paul goes on to describe what real love looks like. Verse 9, abhor what's evil and uh, embrace what's good. Hold fast to what's good. What this means is if we're in a relationship and you decide, I'm just going to do what I want even though I know it's wrong, it's my responsibility if I love you to tell you... That's never happened before. I would just simply say, if it just happened, don't be surprised if it happens again in the next few minutes. That's just a safe assumption. I have competed with stomp competitions in practice. Um, what else have we competed with? That's the first that's ever happened. All right, let's press on. Uh, sincerity, love. Oh, yes, yes. This means if you're doing something that you know is wrong, but you think, I'm just going to do it anyway, sincere love means I come to you and say, what you're doing is wrong. What you're doing is destructive. What you're doing is not God's will, and you know it's not good for you. That's what sincere, genuine love looks like. Okay? That I have true concern for you. It also looks like affection. Uh, what's described here is brotherly affection. I don't know why it's brotherly affection. Except, you know, this means in some ways, like, I don't just sort of love you vaguely in some idealistic way. Like, we're humans. We have bodies. Like, a I give you awkward side hugs. That's what it means. Or if you're one of these freshman guys, they give you like real hugs that somehow aren't awkward. I don't get it. Um, yeah, you're the guilty party. Um, it's great. It, it's genuine. It's wonderful. It's the way it's supposed to be. Uh, and then sincere love, lastly, in verse 10, outdo one another in showing honor. Outdo one another. That should make you think at least that this requires some effort, some work. Sincere love, in some people's minds, is just easy. It's like it's just natural. Love in me should be easy. <laughs> no. Sincere, genuine love is hard. And here it involves concern and affection and effort. So that's sincere love. Then there's a sacrificial love in verses 13 to 16. Contribute to the needs of those who are in need. Contribute. That's costly. It doesn't come out of like monopoly money. Somehow give to those in need. Costly love. Verse 13. Seek to show hospitality. Go out and look for opportunities to serve other people. Search for people to welcome in. Verse 15. Rejoice and weep with those who are rejoicing and weeping. I ain't got time for that. No, he's, sincerely rejoice with those who are rejoicing. Sincerely weep with those who are weeping. This, this require, all these things require cost. Cost to your resources. Cost to your time. Cost to your agenda. Cost to your own comfort. To get involved in someone else's life and mess. Real love, friends, is sacrificial. You say you want real love, do you really want it? Because this is what it looks like. Are you sure you still want a loving community? Because this is what it looks like. It's costly, it's sacrificial. And if it's not hard enough yet, next, 
This love is surprising. It's surprising because of who's involved. Uh, Verse 10 and 16. Love one another. Love one another. Well, you know what? I didn't pick any of you. You certainly didn't pick me. Right? We just got sort of lumped together. I mean, some of you did pick this group. I get it. But you didn't really know what you were getting when you got me. Um, I understand. I got a raw end of the deal. Sorry. But Paul was writing to a bunch of people who were who connected to Jesus and because of that put together and now they're called to love one another. You don't always get to pick the people that you're a part of the community with. And he goes on. You gotta love strangers. Seek to show hospitality. He's saying go out and search for opportunities to welcome people in. Not just your friends. Anyone. Strangers. If you don't believe me, well, he actually makes it worse. Uh, surprisingly, you're supposed to go out and love your enemies. Verse 14, 17, those who persecute you. 20, just your enemies. You're supposed to love them as well. It's a surprising love because of the kind of people involved in the community that we're supposed to love. So this genuine love is sincere, it's sacrificial, it's surprising. And I think it's a lot different than what we think of with a loving community. I want to boil it down to this, try to make it really, really practical for you. I think verse 16 does this. Verse 16, Paul says, Don't be haughty. That's a word you probably haven't used, but your grandmother maybe used once. Don't be haughty. Is that what it says up there? Okay. But associate with the lowly. Now, the Romans may have been haughty for like completely different reasons. Their wisdom, their, their righteousness, their holiness. Um, but for us, it might be a number of different things. My academic excellence my coolness, or lack thereof, whatever, your coolness, my excellence, um, whatever it is, there are reasons in which, deep down, we think we're better than other people. And we should have to associate with some people. The losers, the drunks, the, the scandalously sinful ones, the, as one of my friends put it, the scab pickers and the nose pickers. We shouldn't have to associate with them because the social cost of doing so is too great. The discomfort of doing so is too great. And we don't have the option here of doing that. We're called to move toward them. Um, you know, in reality, I think deep down, most of us are still our eighth grade selves. We're our 14, 13 and 14-year-old selves who are afraid to move toward other people because of what everyone else is going to think about us. Because in our insecurity, we think we're going to ruin it for ourselves if we move outside of our comfortable social circles and actually love people that aren't like us. So the question is, how can you stop being a self-absorbed 14-year-old? And by saying that, I'm not beating you up. I'm actually firmly convinced that most adults are still self-absorbed 14-year-olds as it regards this topic. How can you become the kind of person that Jesus was? How can you get over yourself? And uh, how can you get this sincere, sacrificial, surprising love? You get this sincere, sacrificial, surprising love when you get deep down that this is exactly how Jesus loves you. But not until then. You will not get it until then. Until you realize that Jesus' love for you is utterly surprising. Because you don't deserve it. Because even now, perhaps, as someone that loves Jesus, you still don't love others. And you have to ask, why, why do you love me? Because I don't deserve this. 
until you realize that the God's love for you is really sincere, that the Father delights in you, that the Son wants to be with you, that the Spirit delights to work in you, and that His love is sacrificial, that it was no small thing for God the Son to take flesh and live a full life and give it away for His people. Costly, sacrificial for you. When you understand those things are true of God's love for you, then your heart will start to turn and enable you to love others. So what's holding you back? Last question, what's holding you back? What's keeping you from moving forward deeper into community, toward a church, toward RUF, toward some expression of God's community? Is it you don't understand God's mercy? If so, that's, that's understandable. If you think this whole Christianity thing is about earning God's favor, you're right to be moving slow because you're moving into some other performance trap. Let's talk. That's not what this is. If it's fear of being known, being discovered, remember, this is a place where we all belong purely on the basis of mercy. That Jesus drew near, took flesh, and lived a life to show us mercy so that we might belong to him, so that we might belong to his community, so that we might belong to one another. And it's his love that brings us in, and it's that same love, friends, that's going to enable you to move closer, to move in, to forget yourself, to begin to serve, to love others genuinely. You really, I believe this, you were not meant to be alone. This community, this church, it is God's will for you. I don't mean like this one right here. What we've been talking about, though, this beautiful expression of God's people, it's His will for you if you're in Jesus. All right, let's pray.